Hello and welcome to Hyperfixations, the podcast where we invite different people on to talk about their special interests that they could just talk forever about. Here are your, ho- here are your hosts, I'm Alec. And I'm Nigel. And today we have Sam. Sam, how are you? I'm alright, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on, and you're here to talk to us about... I am here to talk about my favorite band, Pearl Jam. Yes. Okay. And, uh, tell us a bit about like Pearl Jam in general, because like I mean, I know about Pearl Jam, but it's like I feel like a- any band that isn't really new, an awful lot of like contemporary people won't know. So if you could tell <laughs> us just a, a, maybe a bit presumptive of me. I guess, but based off of like modern music trends and stuff, I don't think an awful lot of people who were born fairly recently would know Pearl Jam. Would, right. would that be an accurate? Would that be an accurate um, summation? You know, I'll I'll start that answer by not talking about Pearl Jam at all. Um, we just watched Easy Rider uh, the other day, which is um, you know a, a film that was made about the counterculture there at the end of the 60s and Tessa and I had a discussion about this at the end I was really affected by this when it was the first time I saw it and you know when I was a kid I grew up in the 80s you know that wasn't that far away you know it was still like all of the counterculture all the Vietnam discourse still affected me even though I wasn't alive for any of it and even for somebody who grew up in the 90s or later that's not going to be true So I'm starting to realize that, you know, as ubiquitous as I think things about the counterculture and even before that, you know, the Beatles and all those kinds of the bands. And we've talked about this before on Monkey. They're not ubiquitous anymore. They they certainly aren't. And I think Pearl Jam and bands like them from the 90s are the same way. So I think you're right. Hmm. Yeah, I I think they're they're still like hegemonic, but they're not like ubiquitous. You know, I think so. And, you know, so so Pearl Jam is a band that that comes out of Seattle in the early 90s, around the same time as Nirvana did. Uh, Nirvana actually existed first. Um, Other uh, most of the members of Pearl Jam, except for uh, lead singer, frontman Eddie Vedder, were already in Seattle doing other uh, other bands, other musical products. Um, before that, uh, Eddie Vedder was down in San Diego. I mentioned this to, to uh, Nigel a few weeks back, that um, the drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the former drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, is the one who passed the demo tape for what would become a lot of the songs on Pearl Jam's first album to Eddie Vedder in San Diego. So we have him to thank for that. But, you know, they were one of the big bands of that alt-rock movement that became known as grunge out of Seattle, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains being the most recognizable of those bands. Um, they are the only ones uh, to have never broken up, to have unfortunately not had a, a member pass away, and they are still, for the most part, active as a band. And so, um, as they've declined in popularity, you know, since the end of the 90s, they've kept trucking along with a pretty large, substantial fan base. Hmm. I'm having a look here at the uh, Pearl Jam discography. 
and like you know all their popular releases are from like 1991 that kind of like 1994 95 and then but like they did an MTV Unplugged set in 2020. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, they, they have albums all going through there, but it's like, any uh, anytime I've heard people talk about Pearl Jam or that kind of band, it's always been, like, in the heyday of the 80s and 90s, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, even that 2020 Unplugged release you just referred to is a reissue. It's, it's itself from the early 90s. Um, oh, okay. Good, it's really solid, though. It's a good set. Hmm. But I was... Um, so I just wrote... Well, actually, I wrote it last year, just as the pandemic was getting going, which is ironic, considering what I ultimately wrote about. But I have a chapter in a book on Pearl Jam coming out, uh, I believe, November of this year. And one Ooh. of the things th- that nice. I talk about... Yeah, thank you. Uh, but one of the things that I talk about in the in the first part of the chapter is that as a band, they don't really coalesce around the kind of philosophy that a lot of their songs, um, you know, investigate until the late 90s. You know, before then, they were really caught up in that kind of alt-rock thing that we think about uh, out of the grunge movement, the, 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 the anger um, and and I and I talk about how it's very it's very solipsistic. It's very inward based. You know, I'm dealing with trauma. Um, Eddie Vedder famously had, um, you know, an issue with paternity in his childhood, and uh, I, I mean, try getting out of childhood without trauma. But they were working through it very publicly, <laughs> um, thinking about issues of abuse, uh, child abuse, relationship abuse. Um, this sort of issue-based violence, gun control, uh, you know, things like that. And their first three albums, which all have the most popular stuff, all deal with that anger. And it's really from 1996 on with their fourth album, No Code, that they really stop that inward, solipsistic, trauma-based stuff and really start looking outward for a a philosophy on, okay, at some point we have to figure out how to move forward. How are we going to do that? How do you move forward in your life, you know, past this trauma, acknowledging it, but but giving it its place and not making it the center and not coincidentally, their popularity just nosedives after that. Oh. Okay. So what you're saying is they're really they're just like, we just want your trauma, okay? We don't care about we you want as you a to person. Be Isn't that right, though? I mean, in so much of pop culture. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, if I had, like, a euro for every time, like, I heard someone say, oh, like, Trent Reznor, David, slash David Bowie, slash Stephen King, slash Insert Artist Year was better when they were like on drugs or like in the bowels of depression like i would be fairly rich oh yeah i i remember the uh the discourse on tori amos you know once she was unhappy in relationships and having difficulty having a child her music was great but as soon as she had a child and was happy it was not good anymore i remember that Hmm. but i think i think in that in terms of like separating artists and the trauma that they sometimes harness in their like any kind of work really it's like 
Okay, so we talk about Sylvia Plath, and all of her poetry is read through the lens of she eventually, unfortunately, committed suicide. All of it mm-hmm. is read through that, whereas, like, it wasn't, like, it wasn't written with the goal of I'm going to commit suicide. But we're back reading it through the lens of this trauma, and so all of her work is this is, you know, work. And I'm not saying that there is no depression in Sylvia Plath's poetry, but it's the case of where it's like we're only here for the trauma and the sadness that we can read into it. You know, it's it's really funny that you bring up Sylvia Plath. Um, when I was in when I was in college, I, I love Sylvia Plath, and I mean I. I still do. It's it's a little bit more tempered, a little bit more nuanced. But I I like her as as a poet. But I really liked her back then. And I didn't start listening to Pearl Jam in the early '90s when they first were a thing. I started listening to them in college. And so these these two fandoms, if you will, um, coincided. And there's a song on. Pearl Jam's first album, Ten, it's it's called Garden. And, you know, the lyrics go, um, I will walk with my hands bound. I will walk with my face blood. I will walk with my shadow black through your garden, Garden of Stone. And to me, that just sounded like Sylvia Plath. That sounded like this persona of her in my head, you know, based on her poems and her biography. This person who you know, decided at the end, as the song says at the end, I don't need you for me to live. And she made the choice not to live as a result of that. And so I've always like connected that Pearl Jam song and Sylvia Plath together. And I actually mentioned that in the chapter as well. So you walked right into that by mentioning Sylvia Plath, <laughs> but she's a really good example. Uh, it is. Yeah, she is, but it's like, what are, what are the like cosmological odds of that like I haven't read it so it wasn't even that I was trying to like queue it up for a plug you know because <laughs> there's so many there's so many people who unfortunately fall into that you know like you mentioned Nirvana as well like everything everything that Nirvana uh, and Kurt Cobain went through it you know it's always going to be viewed through that lens again because Kurt Cobain committed suicide and you know yeah unfortunately and you know, you talk about trauma. Every every five, ten years, you know, Dave Grohl will say something about it. Maybe it's in a song, or maybe not. But you can still tell that he's dealing with it. Um, you know, that trauma of losing uh, somebody like Kurt, even though he's gone on to make this whole other band of his own that's been together, you know, multiple times longer than Nirvana ever was. It just it doesn't go away. And yeah. and that's really the story. You know, at some point, you do have to do something with it. Uh, Kurt decided what he was going to do with it. And, and that created more trauma that, you know, like Dave Grohl and Pat Smear and Chris Novoselic and Courtney Love as well, all had to deal with, and they found different ways to deal with it too. And so that's, I think that's one of the, I guess maybe those are two, not the only two, but they're two trajectories about mm-hmm. how you deal with trauma. What I think is just funny, like to just briefly stay on the Foo Fighters um, Nirvana thing, where Dave Grohl will come out every five, ten years or so and, and say something about um, Kurt Cobain. But then the one, the one like actual piece of media that they've put out that everyone reads as being explicitly, this is him 
grieving for Kurt Cobain, the song My Hero, he has yeah. to keep being like, this is not, this is not, and I repeat not, about Kurt Cobain. Yeah, there's he's a like song if, on... He's like, if you the, want, like, Kurt Cobain stuff, you can find it elsewhere. <laughs> well, I mean, on uh, Wasted Light, he did uh, the song Should Have Known, and um, uh, Chris Novoselic, and, of course, Pat Smears in the band, and Butch Vig, who produced Nevermind, all play on the track. That one's explicitly uh, about Kurt. Um, a friend of a friend on... Oh, In Your Honor is um, about Kurt probably as well. And then Stacked Actors from There's Nothing Left to Lose is about Courtney. Yeah. So this is turning into a Foo Fighters episode, but <laughs> I also really like the Foo Fighters, so what are you going to do? Yeah. They all, they all came out of that Seattle grunge scene. Uh, I was wondering maybe if you could touch a bit on why, why do you think Seattle was such a big like melting pot for the grunge scene because you've got you know you've got nirvana and foo fighters and well foo fighters isn't really grunge but you know it's a big band that came I, out of seattle and well Alice in chains so you know if you go back and you look at the history of rock it, you look at um i mean you could look at manchester you could look at chicago you could look at you know certainly new york city LA to a lesser extent, but you always find when these explosions happen, they've happened because behind the scenes for years unreported, there's been this scene of, of people who make music. They make music together. They make music in bands and the bands don't go anywhere and they split up and all the members just seem to reshuffle. Sometimes you get some new blood and it just kind of simmers for a while. And then and then you see that, that explosion uh, you know, onto the popular scene, but it's been something that's been, you know, brewing for a long time. Um, I mentioned Manchester because the first thing that came to mind is the, the you know, the movie 24 Hour Party People. Um, but Cameron Crowe did a doc on uh, Pearl Jam uh, for their 20th year together. It's called PJ20, appropriate. And they spend a lot of time talking about the beginning of that scene in, in Seattle. Um, you know, Chris Cornell was still alive at the time they made the film, so he talks about it quite a bit. Um, and so, you know, I think that's what it is. I think that, um, you know, they talk a little bit how there's something to the weather and it's kind of rainy and, and, and crappy all the time. But, but really, more than anything else, it's just the right place, right, the right time of this musical vibe coalescing and it's not just one vibe either you know there's there are people who are doing like the next wave of punk music like mark arm uh who founded mud honey uh for example you have uh, mother love bone which is the band that kind of predated pearl jam was doing like glam rock crossed with kind of what axel rose was doing uh, you've got Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, which are straight-up metal bands before they slow down and kind of embrace that dirty, grungy bass line, which to me is like the big the big thing. And, you know, Kurt's doing the Pixies. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on. So um, even within that scene, but which you see as kind of a monolithic thing, there's tons of stuff going on. 
Yeah, I'm thinking of I'm, I'm thinking of the the board that's behind Jack Black in School of Rock, where he's just <laughs> written down all of the uh, like the different bands and how they intersect, or it's like they're doing this, which links into this, and I'm pretty sure there is like a like a, a, a small little bubble on it that has like Seattle grunge, and in it is Nirvana, Alice in Chains, um, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to. It's it's. Um... Neil Young has said it. I think the Grateful Dead have said it too at one point. But it's all one song. At the end of the day, it's all one song. Oh, I like that. So when did you when did you get start getting into Pearl Jam? And you mentioned like kind of you were to them during college. Yeah, it was a it was a girl. It's always <laughs> a girl. Always. I know that's that's film noir, but it's also true in this case. Um, my my girlfriend in college. Uh, listened to Pearl Jam. Uh, her roommate did, uh, and and they were just huge fans. And so to be a part of their orbit meant listening to Pearl Jam. And so, um, you know, we were together for like a year, and and I've been listening to this band for how almost you know, over 20 years at this point. So it, clearly that fandom lasted much longer than the relationship. But, <laughs> you know, prior to that, I I had been somebody, and I said this earlier, I, I really listened to more what we would call classic rock or oldies at that period. You know, I would be, I still love the Beatles now, but I listened to them a lot. I used to listen to the White Album pretty obsessively back then. Um, the Monkees, of course, uh, were my favorite band, and um, but I would listen to like the Eagles, the Doors, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. You know that that's the kind of thing. And then of course '80s pop. You know George Michael, Wham, Hall and Oates. Because if I'm nothing if not a contradiction when it comes to that, but new stuff didn't move the needle. I listened to uh, I love Garbage. I love Shirley Manson. Always have. Um, and Foo Fighters, obviously, and I did listen to Nirvana at the time, but you know that was a moment for me where I really started listening to more uh, current stuff. And I say current, even though Pearl Jam was already kind of not cool by 1998. Uh, <laughs> um, but but that was kind of the that's that's what happened. And you know from that point, Pearl Jam was a gateway drug to Soundgarden to Alice in Chains. And, you know, so I came to it a little bit late, but as like the youngest possible Generation Xer, that is my life. I always find things late from our generational discourse. So it's no surprise, really. You're one of the yeah. younger in the generation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, they finally said, you know, the cutoff is 1980 and I was born in September um, of 79 so you know I was born right at the end so you know um, all my friends growing up were always older than me um, I always tried to I always found myself you know trending to things that they liked you know seeing myself as kind of like an old soul and so that 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 did a lot to kind of form things like I, I do remember uh, when Rage Against the Machines first album came out, I was in ninth grade. I really liked that. Something like 
really resonated with me. Uh, but for the most part, if it was something that was happening that was part of my generation, I was probably too young for it when it was actually happening. And so it would be years after the fact to be like, yeah, yeah, I feel that way. You know, when I first saw, finally saw my so-called life after it was canceled, I was like, yeah, I feel that way. I wouldn't have when it came out, but I do now. So, yeah. Always the way. I, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we, I, I always had these, these, these thoughts about people who, you know, were into the scene at the time, you know, uh, people who subscribe to the Sub Pop catalog. You know, Sub Pop is the big indie label out of Seattle. And, you mm -hmm. know, you'd hear these, these, these people, you know, five, six, seven, even 10 years older than me, talk about how they had that seminal experience in high school of getting the magazine cutting the cutting the order form out of the back and like sending the money via envelope and waiting weeks for the the tape to get there and it's like i never that that was not part of my existence no. you know not your experience like no and and generation x te tends to be kind of the worst about that uh you know be being exclusionary like you weren't there like well i was i was just seven you know <laughs> always the way when you get into like you're like or like you know like things like that kind of came before your time saying like well why didn't you listen to it when it came out i don't know because i was like still in the womb yeah. right and and that's that's a really you know it can become toxic when you talk about fandoms like who's a real fan and, and who's oh. not and it, right and that's certainly been my experience you know listening to pearl jam for years and years and years uh you know there are people who are like you know i've been listening to them since day one i saw my first show in 92 it's like uh, great but for you. <laughs> right. So are you leaning on the side of that whole, like, faux, like, gatekeeping kind of thing where it's like, oh, real fans versus fake fans, depending on when you get into it? Like, are you leaning on the side that that's complete bullshit? Yeah, I I think it is. I think that... I, I think that we should do better in general about valuing experience. You know... Yeah. Somebody who okay. saw somebody who saw the band in '92, man, that's cool. I wish I was there, but I wasn't. So I can say that's really cool and say, but I'll tell you, I first saw them, you know, when they toured in in '98. They came to the town, you know, that I was in school at. That was my first experience of getting in line for concert tickets. That was my first really big rock show. You know, I'd been to other shows before, but that was the first big rock show. You had floor seats. It was just, man, it was an experience. And and it doesn't invalidate what somebody else had, you know, being in the fandom before I ever was, but it's their experience doesn't invalidate mine either. So yeah, that that's the side of that argument for sure. I think I think music is always one of those ones. It's like the prime example of well, why didn't you get into <laughs> it, like when it was uh, like the big thing? Because you can't really do it with TV shows because like the era of uh, like Prime and Netflix and that kind of thing, where you can and everyone tapes it, so there's not as many like concurrent viewers as it was in like the 90s when everything was like an event miniseries and you had half the population of America. Tuning in to watch stuff like... in the evenings, right? Yeah, I but, mean, I like, to, I like to say that. Different. I I think you're right about music being the most 
the primary one. I do like to say that I watched the first episode of The Simpsons, the first, uh, its first airing. Okay, that was cool. It is cool. It doesn't make it, like, if anybody else likes The Simpsons or doesn't, it doesn't really change anything. But yeah, I think that's cool. And that's it. No judgments on anybody else. I'm going to... I'm going to say something that may make you judge me, Sam. I have never seen an episode of The Simpsons. But you haven't seen a Star Wars either. No, I, don't I think haven't I have... seen a Star Wars either. I don't... I'm trying to think. I don't know if I've ever seen a Simpsons episode, like, start to, like, start to finish, like... Does The Simpsons movie count as a Simpsons episode? I've seen a lot mm. of that. Mm. I don't know. I've, I... I've seen The Simpsons movie several times through. Um... Is it good? Yeah, I enjoy it. Granted, it, it, so this is, I guess this ties back into the whole music thing because, it, like, with The Simpsons, you've got a clear point of, like, The Simpsons is now bad after this point. And it's <laughs> right. just kind of, like, like limping on. And, it, it, you know, it's a fraction of its former glory. And you see shit like that with, you know, with music and stuff where it's, like, a lot of alt bands now you know that used to be that came out of like the 2005 pop punk scene and whatever they're all like <laughs> making pop sounding music like Fall Out Boy and Linkin Park and things like that um and you're like oh well they sold out and they're not as good now because they changed up their set blah 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 like eh. like shut up yeah and then you get people again you're like people saying like well, why didn't you get this album like when like when it first came out because i was like minus five years old like um yeah i think it's really funny the like the funniest experience with this is like i would count myself as a fan of my chemical romance but i never saw them when Hmm. they were actively performing the first time that i would get to see them is if i ever actually see them on their comeback tour which keeps getting postponed because of covid but (laughs) It was really funny because the first time... So, like, for me, Nirvana was kind of, like, the gateway into music that wasn't Top 40 music. And then I was, like, reading, I think, like, Kerrang! and stuff like that. So, like, it kind yeah. of like the, the sub-pop catalog thing where they'd have, like, a chart list. I'd be like, what's in the alt charts now? But I found my Chemical Romance, like... This is in 2013, so it was, like, just a couple months after they had broken up. And I had some um, friends who were, like, really into, like, like emo and that kind of thing. And I remember saying, like, a couple weeks ago, like, man, I really love my chemical romance. They're so cool. They were just like, I don't know how to tell you this. <laughs> See, I'm afraid to tell you this. Well, yeah. But, so, but, like, Pearl Jam has never broken up. No. And I used to always say that when you're in trouble is when the lead singer does a solo album, right? I yeah. I, I thought yeah. that. Um, Eddie Vedder has done a couple now. He's done, uh, he did the Into the Wild soundtrack. And then he did, um, so so Eddie Vedder is a huge uh, Pete Townsend fan, uh, just a huge Who fan. But uh, specifically mm-hmm. when he, he, he knew that thing about how Pete Townsend used to compose using the ukulele. And so he has taken to that. And so he has a solo album that's called Ukulele Songs. Um, That's pretty good. Glenn Hansard is on a song. Uh, They toured together a few years back. Um, But, you know, despite that, I think 
every member of the band has done multiple side stuff, sometimes under their own name, sometimes as like a, another group. Uh, you know, for example, uh, Mike McCready a long time ago did uh, before Lane Staley of Alice in Chains died. They kind of made a super group called Mad Season and made an album together. Uh, Matt Cameron, who's been the drummer for Pearl Jam since 98, since that first tour, I saw him on his first tour with Pearl Jam, was the former drummer of Soundgarden. Um, but even though they've done most of these things, you know, they've done a lot of work musically away from the band. Uh, a lot of Pearl Jam fans say that Pearl Jam has been a part-time band since about 2006. Uh, you know, okay. they're still committed to making music together, but it's not their life anymore, if that makes sense. Okay. That's that's kind of interesting because they did like they haven't officially been like we're gonna we're gonna pull the plug on this. No, and I and I think that maybe part of that you gotta assume, even if they've never talked about it consciously, I, I feel like you've gotta assume that's like last band standing, right? You know, we're the only yeah. ones who didn't burn out. And so how do you just fade away? They're also really good friends with Neil Young, so that that better to burn out than fade away is appropriate. Uh, I I think but they're also, about like, done. That was in yeah that that phrase was also in Kurt Cobain's suicide note as well and in a exactly Def, Def Leppard song so it, it really is permeating that whole that whole genre it's better to burn out than fade away that that idea yeah the 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 Neil Young song uh, Hey Hey My My uh, where he says it's better to burn out than to fade away uh, he actually invokes Johnny Rotten in that song. <laughs> It's all one song. Where does it, it all end? Comes together. Where does it end? It, it doesn't. But that's the you know. But that's the story of rock and roll, right? It, it, it there there rock aren't and roll stories. Never dies, baby. That's right. So I mean, like it's you know when you look at it that way, Pearl Jam is a really good example of a band that's that's charting a course that's very different from what we know from rock and roll. They have just kept going. Which is remarkable, I think, in some respects. Is, is, do you think there's a reason that they've continued go, like going on instead of tossing in the towel? Like, you know, one that isn't just, oh, we want to be last band standing. I think they might actually like each other. What? I what? know, it's crazy. So, <laughs> so the, um, the, the core of the band is uh, the... One of the guitarists, Stone Gossard, and the bassist uh, Jeff Ament. They uh, Jeff is from Montana, which is which is like big sky, you know, country. It's one of those big rect uh, big rectangle states that aren't very populated. Uh, but they met in the '80s, and they've been in multiple bands together, and and they just seem to really really like each other. You know, they're the core of the band, and. And they knew Matt Cameron, who I said has now been the drummer for over 20 years, but they knew him when it was time to lay down these demos for what would become Pearl Jam. Matt Cameron actually plays the drums on those when there are drums, uh, even though he wasn't a member of the band for years after that because he was with Soundgarden. Uh, and and so, like, you have, again, it goes back to the idea of Seattle being this core of people who, who knew each other. And here are these three people that seem to really know each other and really like each other. 
Um, and then Mike McCready, the, the, the guitarist who does most of the solo work, was just this whiz kid. And they were like, hey, we want you to be in the band with us. And, and then uh, Jack Irons, who was the drummer for uh, Chili Peppers back in the day, says, I found this guy who surfs down in San Diego and they brought him in. And so he was really kind of the only unknown when the band got together. And there was some rough stuff there in the first few years with them as far as relationships from what from what we know publicly. I mean, you, you have really no idea what went on there, but you know, for the last 20 something years, they've, they've stayed together and they certainly didn't have to. So you have to assume it's because they like each other. I don't know. I mean, like, I guess. A bunch of pals. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope so. I mean, I like to think that in, in any case. I like to think that too. I haven't really listened to them before, but like, I like that idea. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could ask yourself, why are the Stones still together? I mean, I guess that's really the the other example you could point to. I don't know if that's just entropy or inertia or both at the same time. Big questions. Yeah. I'm, I, whenever anyone brings up the fact that the Rolling Stones are still together, I mean, you look at Mick Jagger, he looks like he's just been poured into <laughs> those skinny jeans because, like, or, or like he never takes them off. They're just molded to his legs because, like, yeah. how? they're part of his. They're part of his skin now. Yeah, exactly. From so many years, but um, back when I was in fifth class, so that would have been eleven. Yeah, eleven. Uh, our headmaster. Started, like he only ever referred to them as the strolling bones because they were they were that old. That's that was ten years ago. And oh they're yeah, still they're still about and kicking. So you know, if they and they actually you know every so often do release new music, but the Stones do. Mm. But um, I saw a Pearl Jam fan online say the other day that at some point any band that stays together long enough becomes like a legacy band, like a classic rock band. You know, if the Stones put out new music, nobody cares. They, you don't go to a Rolling Stones show to see their new stuff. You know, you you expect the hits. And I, I guess that's one of the things that I would say about Pearl Jam is that I expect any time now that that's where we're going to get. You know, they released a new album just before the pandemic started, which is, you know, reads a lot different. You know, the subject matter of that album does because of the pandemic, but... You know, they're still working on new music. They're still active. And so I, I guess that's one of the big differences between those two bands. Um, I don't think Pearl Jam's going to stay together as long as the Rolling Stones have. And maybe that's okay. Maybe no band will. Like, maybe the Rolling Stones are just destined to stay together longer than anyone. You know, maybe no band should, to be perfectly honest. Um, maybe it's just, it's just the one. The yeah. Rolling Stones are to music bands what the Queen of England is to um, royals. Where it's like, <laughs> will she ever die? No, probably I, not. I don't wish. When was she born? Unclear. You know, I I'm was sad. Close. I was sad when George Harrison died that the three of them never got together and, and performed. Uh, you know, either just the three of them or roping somebody else in, I don't know, but... I was I was always sad that that happened. Um, we are Hopefully. actually going to we're actually going to see um, Mickey Dolenz and Mike Nesmith 
the two surviving members of the monkeys later this year as long as we can still do that uh you know gonna see them play and it's kind of bittersweet but it's nice to see it uh, yeah you know because i mean like that's what they've done with queen you know they um brian john and adam lambert yeah well no i was trying to remember the other the other original member john so roger Deacon Deacon doesn't play with them yeah yeah he he made it clear he gave um he gave the two of them his blessing but he said he didn't want to be a part of it we we've seen that um that band you know um uh roger taylor brian may and adam lambert we saw them a few years back and it was really good i mean it wasn't freddie yeah but it was good so good but no yeah no one can be freddie and i think no i think that's the key thing if you're gonna have a band go on right don't mm-hmm. try and be like if you're going to keep going don't try and be the exact same band Right, you know? and you've seen and you've seen um, uh, Pete Townsend and um, I'm blanking on his name um, from the Who. You've seen the two of them go on without the yeah. rhythm section, who are dead now. And I don't know when it's just the two of you. I don't think it's the band anymore. Even if you are the two people in front, you know. Um, yeah, like I mean, Led Zeppelin. You know, they were like, we're not doing. We're not doing this anymore. Um, right. And Page yeah. and Plant performed together as Page and Plant. And by the way, it was Roger Daltrey. I, I remembered. I got there with the Who. So. <laughs> you got there in the end. I, yeah. Sorry, there's a bunch of strange knocking on the outside of my shed. Right. I thought someone wanted to get in. But no, I opened the shed door oh, okay. and there was no one there. Oh, I, my internet just went out for a second. So seems like a lot just oh. happened. Yeah, just oh, a whole... Nice. I I was just here like, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I suppose, like, as an end to that discussion, like, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical, Sam. What would you do? What would you do in that situation? Like, let's say you were in a band that got really, really famous, and you were, like, top of your game, and then someone died, or you put out stuff that wasn't about your trauma and no one wanted to listen to it. Like, what What would your call be? So I, I think there are a couple of ways to answer that. And, and you know, the thing about it is, is that there's this, there's this joke. I can't tell you who deserves credit for it, but it's certainly not me. <laughs> if Kurt hadn't have died, first of all, I don't think Nirvana would still be around. I think he'd still be making music. But, like, the Kurt Cobain Bluegrass album, that would have been something. We never got to hear that. But, you know, you look at somebody like 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 him, he, he just had too much going on. It wasn't always going to be the same thing. It was going to be something different. And would the people who listened to Nirvana followed him down whatever road he went? Don't know. Won't ever know. We know what Dave Grohl did. And, you know, at this point, you respect Dave Grohl because he's made like a classic rock album a disco album he bought a studio he made an album using you know just tape not digital anything he's doing what he wants and people still listen would he still be doing what he wanted if people didn't listen i'd like to think so and i i just think that's the answer i mean like if you have that kind of 
talent for music that I certainly don't have. I, I think it's it's yours to do with what you will. And, you know, respect to the people who have done it. And there's been plenty of people who've done it that we've never heard of. But, you know, so I can only speak to the people who have. But good for them. Oh, excuse me. I will say, though, that I'm still glad that Pearl Jam is together still, though. I'm glad they're still doing their thing. Even if yeah. they never put out new music. Uh, you know, the last two albums weren't great. You know, um, yeah. I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if diminishing returns on new music is the right thing to say. You know, I, I like songs off the newest album. There are songs that really resonate. Um, it's different, and and I like stuff. I don't have to like it all to say I'm still a fan. Yeah, Fortunately, yeah, because as we've established, like you know, experience should not strictly define fanhood. Yeah, and you know, when I was when I was younger, there were songs that I liked better than I like now, and I don't think it's purely from you know I've listened to you know, say, Spin the Black Circle, like, thousands of times at this point. And it just sounds different now. And it's not because I know every single, you know, angle in that song, every single musical inflection, because I've heard it so many times. It just, emotionally, it hits different. I'm not in the same place that I was now as I was then, you know. But the songs where they talk about being in a different place now than I was then, I like that. Because that, that's where I'm at right now. You know? Nice. Yeah. If you if you were to give someone who hadn't heard Pearl Jam, like an intro guide to like getting into Pearl Jam. Yeah. Where, where would you go about starting with? Because I feel like if you know Pearl Jam at any level, you'll know like at least one song. I have a feeling you know which song it is, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know Andy just made fun of me the last time we recorded because I always say start at the beginning which I have to feel like that's not true but I'm struggling to not say start at the beginning uh, with this but you know I, I can mention a couple of things I, I can mention that um I think those first three albums are really a good crash course in that in that moment, uh, that kind of moment from 91 to 94. And there's great stuff on there. Um, I, for example, on Vitology, which came out in 94, there's a song called Not For You. Uh, and and the, the lines, all that's sacred comes from youth, dedications naive and true, with no power and nothing to do. I still remember why don't you that I went back to get my PhD and you know train new English teachers because I don't like the way that English is taught I don't like the way that humanities have been discarded here I I don't like the way that children and adolescents are infantilized and nobody seems to care what they think um, 
and and so I wanted to go back and I wanted to try to do my best to change the system. And I couldn't do that as a classroom high school English teacher anymore. So I decided to train the new ones. See if I could get, you know, level up on the pyramid there. But, you know, that song it encapsulates why it's it's there with me the whole time and so um but the thing about pearl jam is there are so many entry points emotional entry points uh, if you look at so another place you could go is is you could go to uh, the album that came out after that in 96 no code which was this bizarre experiment they did no press around it they just kind of dropped the vinyl and said here you go have a good time no press no nothing but it's got these really interesting themes about, you know, if I had known then, what I know now, what does it mean to be an adult? Uh, how do you, knowing that the innocence is easily lost, what do you do to keep that innocence instilled, you know, in a younger person? Can you rediscover it? And that's ultimately what I what I wrote about. Um, and and so I think that's I think that's a really good introspection. You know, if you think, oh, well, Pearl Jam's a grunge band. What else do they have to offer? That's a good place to look. Another place that I would I would think the other place uh, that's kind of an off the wall suggestion is that if you're deep in your feelings about this this <laughs> pandemic and not really knowing which way is up anymore, uh, there's a there's an album from 2002 called Riot Act where it's a very it is the 9-11 george w bush album but i've listened to it a lot over the past year you know because there's a lot of meditations on that album about the world was here before we were we didn't create it it created us and and (laughs) you know there's there's some of that uh, you know but but musically it's a really good place of inspiration for them, uh, you know, a lot of fans talk about how uh, W was really their their last big motivation musically, um, and nobody since, even though there's been worse since, has been able to inspire them the way that that he did. So, uh, there's a couple of suggestions there. Do you have a favorite Pearl Jam record? This is kind of a this is kind of a thorny <laughs> question. I realize. It's much easier to do with, like, you know, a a book series or, like, even a film series, if you're talking about it specifically. But, like, you know, because you've you've already mentioned that you don't vibe with some of the songs you liked a lot back then now because you're in a different place. Do you have... Is there one that's sort of stood the test of time? Either an album or, like, a song? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh... Even as you asked that question, at the beginning of the question, I was like, I'm not sure. And by the time you got to the end, I was like, yeah, I still feel this way. Um, so No Code is their fourth album. I would have told you back in the early days through the 2000s that No Code was my favorite. And I, I have wavered on that, but I think I'll stay. I'm okay with that. Um, it's not the album I would listen to the most, probably, but... Because I, as you know, I'm I'm big on rankings. I, I try to rank all the time, just as an exercise, because it really, it it asks you to, to do that analytical work. It's, uh, and so I, I really like those themes of of innocence, 
which is why I wrote about it, mm. that, that come up on no code. I, I will... I, I can defend a lot of other things. I still really like Vitalogy, their third album, as an album. It is the one where Eddie Vedder basically took over. You know, it was less of a democratic process and it was very problematic. But man, those songs are good, nonetheless. Um, fun fact, Better Man, which is something that most everybody knows, that is not a Pearl Jam song initially. Eddie Vedder wrote that song in the mid 80s. And and I think that's what? I think that's I think it's fascinating. It's um it, it hit the original demo of that that he did at home. It really sounds because he was he was vibing on uh, Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel of Love album <clears throat> at that point, and that's what Better Man sounds like. It sounds like a mid '80s Springsteen song. So excuse me. <clears throat> so favorite song I mentioned earlier, not for you, is. Maybe my all-time favorite. It's on Vitalogy. I would go one album back to Versus. I love Rearview Mirror, um, which is a song. It's part of a two-parter. Uh, the first part is Daughter, which, again, gets radio play still to this day. But Daughter is about a, a girl, a child, um, who has who's abused. Some We don't really know specifically um, if it's what kind of abuse it is, but it's abuse nonetheless. And there's this great line in the song, uh, the shades go down, which means, you know, you don't know what goes on. You know, when the window, when the curtains are closed, you know, behind closed doors, you don't know really what happens in families. Uh, and then there's a song later on in the album called Rearview Mirror. And the person has grown up. And the way I read the song is this is an adult escaping from an abusive relationship, like a intimate partner relationship. And, 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 and even before I lived through that myself, I really liked that song, but having lived through that, uh, it's, it's very cathartic, that song, but at the end of the song, uh, the line is hard to believe finally the shades are raised and it's just this, you know, they were good from the beginning because they understood that, that cyclical nature of things, you know, that, that on verses especially dealing with that cycle of, of abuse that you know can start when someone is young and continue throughout their life you know you have to be careful about that um yeah you know and and, and so i think that's really great um it's a great song because like i said it's so cathartic so rearview mirror not for you and i'll give you one more to round out so here's the top three from no code i would go with red mosquito um which is a song uh I love it. It's got a it's got a really great slide guitar. Um, it's it's not the only Pearl Jam song in which the singer meets the devil, uh, and it's it's so great. It's 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 all about if I had known then what I know now, uh, and and you know no matter what you think you've gotten out of in your life, the the devil's always waiting for you. No matter what, it's very supernatural, the show, in that respect. No matter what, there's always going to be something else that happens. And if you had known that when you were younger, maybe it would have made things a little bit better. So I, I really like that. Mm. Is this a common occurrence that the lead singer of Pearl Jam meets the devil? <laughs> um, somewhat. Uh, there's a On Vitalogy, there's a song called 
there's a song called Satan's Bed. Um, I've never slept in Satan's bed, but he still visits my place. Mm, and know. Lil Nas X gave him a lap dance. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's you know, so we've been watching uh, Lucifer. So it's it's the 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 sexualization of of the devil is always right there forefront in pop culture. I mean, the Stones, you know, to go back to them, they were all over that, right? Hmm. I I don't think I've mentioned it on this podcast. I've definitely mentioned it when I was talking about vampires on Archive of Myers. But it's like there, like, and it, it feeds into rock and roll an awful lot, where it's like there is this weird like dangerous sexualization almost fetishization of like things from like evil mythology you know like you've got vampires and now they're all like Ram Stoker made them really really sexy in um, Dracula they, they you know they have that intrigue but just when you're talking about like sexy Satan and in terms of like never sleeping in Satan's bed it's really weird to me that like the sexy Satan trend was started by old man John Milton in like the 1500s with Paradise Lost. It's so strange to me because now we have like Mark Pellegrino as Lucifer in Supernatural and we have Tom Ellis as Lucifer in Lucifer who are very, very sexy men. But it's really weird to think that like an old blind white man is responsible for them. Yeah, just, you know, this idea that, that evil is alluring, as you said, it goes back way, way back. But that is what rock and roll is, right? I mean, you go back to Robert Johnson and the Crossroads and his deal with the devil to play the guitar well. You know, that rock and roll exists because of the alluring, the perceived alluring nature of Eden, right? It's the, I shouldn't have this, should I? You know, to me, that's what good rock and roll does, whether it's Pearl Jam or anybody else. This feels good. And should it? You know, that's the question that other people keep asking. Well, no, you absolutely should. I, I'm <laughs> with, I'm with, I'm with Robert Johnson and Little Nas X and everybody in between. It, it should feel good. Yeah. Yeah. If it like, if it doesn't feel good, you shouldn't do it. In terms of creative <laughs> endeavors, I'm not, I'm not advocating like murder or anything. <laughs> um, but like, if you're a if you're out here making art and it does not bring you joy to quote Marie Kondo, um, you know, I don't think you should be doing it. But that's the thing about fandom mm. too. That's, that's the answer to fandom. If you, if an artist does something that they enjoy, that's it. They don't need your approval, which, which, yeah. which the Vitology, I keep going back to that from 94. That's part of what that album's about. That's Eddie Vedder reacting and saying, I don't make this for you. It's not for you. You know, if you like it, great. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's kind of that artist asserting their rights. But like, if you don't want to listen to Dave Grohl sing Bee Gees covers, you don't have to. Now you should, because mm -hmm. it's good. But, but, <laughs> but if it doesn't bring you joy, then don't waste your time, right? So I mean I think yeah. that's ultimately the answer to fandom is that if it if it brings an artist joy good for them and if it brings you joy good for you. Yeah, I think like you have you know, especially now and today when you have the internet like it's a very fine line you tread. But like it goes back to way back to like Sherlock Holmes when he was killed off and the fan like 
Arthur Conan Doyle did not want to write Sherlock Holmes anymore. But there was that much of an outcry that he was forced to bring him back. But like, yeah, yeah. you know, if Sir Arthur Conan Doyle could have put out a Vitalogy um, <laughs> type album, <laughs> I think he would. I kind of think that's what that's what uh, the what is it? Reichenbach Falls. I kind of think yeah. that's what that is. That's what that is. Absolutely. I hate this. I hate this. Just die. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what he did. Die. Yeah, he's like, just let me write stories about dinosaurs and believe in fairies. Just, I don't want to write about the detective guy anymore. Please, he's gonna be, he's gonna become a Tumblr sexy man. It's, oh man. Hey, I think the so, greatest. Go ahead. Sorry, I was just gonna say, like, kind of like semi-related. I think the greatest thing of like, of a creator, or someone trying to say, like, okay, I'm gonna like, kill this character so that they'll never be like, you know. I don't have to make any more sequels um, or anything like that. I think the best example of that was when Charlton Heston in the original Pan Leaks movie, at the end of the second one, he decided that the world was going to end. So he was like, we cannot make any more sequels. And then they said, okay, but we're going to travel back in time. So yes, there will be more sequels. Yeah. It's like, and then Tim Burton happened. Oh, Oh, this is well before Tim Burton. This is like, 1970, I think, was when Beneath Glen the Apes came out. Yeah, yeah, I know, but like the, the whole Tim Burton thing, even before they made the monkeys realistic CGI, like mm. it all goes back to Tim Burton. You know, um, back when Avril Lavigne first became a thing, for however long that was true, uh, Mike McCready, you know, so you got this lead guitarist in Pearl Jam, right? Like this person who still has a lot of cultural relevance is like. Her album's one of my favorite albums of the year. And and a lot of people, a lot of fans lost their minds. And it was like, you know, you can kind of like what you like. And every time I think about Taylor Swift, for example, you know, who is now like, you know, having reached, you know, the age that she's at now, it's kind of like anybody can like her. But it's like, you know, you're like this, this grown adult person who likes rock and roll? What business do you have with Taylor Swift? And I'm like, well, you know, that's where the game is right now. She is doing good work. That is somebody who's doing good art, and I like it. Um, you know, it's a lot like Olivia Rodrigo this year. Like, I heard uh, Good For You for the first time, and I was like, I love this song. This is the best song that I've heard in a long time. Just straight out of the game. Olivia Rodrigo. So, yeah, and, and so I, I think that's the other thing, too, is that you know, one thing is we got very siloed um, in the in the '90s with 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 grunge, with Nirvana, with Pearl Jam, with with bands like that. And and I think that everybody who has come after is kind of fed off of that, and it's it's again been a kind of inertia thing. But I I hope we get more and farther away from that to say that you know mm. you know you like. It was popular back in the 90s to say that I like all genres except for for country and rap, which, first of all, makes Mm -hmm. you a very specific white person in this country. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, yeah, as somebody who who went to see a Dixie Chicks show like the year after I saw Pearl Jam, you know, I saw them back. I love the Dixie Chicks. Yeah. I mean, I saw them back when they were promoting their second album together with Natalie Maines. And I mean, 
you know, even then, you know, I looked really out of place at that show. I was not wearing cowboy boots. I had a flannel shirt. But you like what you like. Exactly. You know, so I... I'm sorry, go ahead. I just, so, you know, that's, that's how I feel. I love talking about music and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it today. Um, for me, it's, you know, this conversation is very indicative of the way it is. Like, it, it, the purpose is to talk about Pearl Jam for an hour. We've talked about a lot that Everything. wasn't Pearl Jam. But that's, to me, that's the thing about talking about, I would say only music, but to be perfectly honest, it's all the things that I'm most passionate about is that it's very hard to to talk about something in that kind of deep way without thinking about all the things that that one thing, be it a band like Pearl Jam or, or what have you, it touches. It touches so many other things. And that's why it means the most to me because there are all these relationships with other, you know, my, my life, my biography, my professional work that I do, other music that I like, you know, TV, uh, movies, and, and books, it all ties together. And that's part of why I like them so much, is that that happened in my brain. It's a scary place. Yeah. <laughs> and relation. It's all linked yeah. to the way. That, that is an interesting point, just to quickly circle back around to that. It's like, we perceive that things are bad like this whole perception of like things are bad because teenage girls like them. <laughs> you know, yeah. you had it with Taylor Swift, you have it with Olivia Rodrigo kind of now. You had it with like John Green back in the like zenith of like the fault in our stars being adapted into a movie. Um mm. you know, uh, well, it like it seems to be that every single thing we talk about it's like this goes way back, but it's like, you know, Anything that, that women read back when, like, print was becoming, a like, a burgeoning medium. It was like, well, this is lesser stuff, and this is all, like, your penny dreadfuls, and it's for the lower classes and for women, because they're not up to reading, quote-unquote, intellectual things. And it's like, just because, you know, just because people who are outside of the pyramid of privilege, uh, you know, they're not inherently lesser. Like I actually have to say on the topic of that, the idea that like something like is bad because teenage girls like it, or like I just have to I just have to say, oh, sorry, teenage girls like like if like if I were a band or whatever, teenage girls are probably the best demographic of fans you can have. Have you seen how dedicated they are? Like, have you seen videos of like Beatlemania? Yeah, they are the best demographic. Have you seen Stan accounts like? Yeah, or like BTS fan cams. Yeah, they are they are dedicated. They like as someone who was a teenage girl like relatively recently, um like they are very dedicated and stuff and I just don't understand why people just act like they're fucking lowest common denominator of fan of like music fans, because like it's just not this. I'm trying to I'm I, I'm trying to find a place to enter that. I mean, because it's it, it. I mean, you're obviously correct. Uh, you know, both of you and what you said. Uh, you know, the thing that I guess to to turn to what I do professionally, which again is to to one. Uh, you know, I write about 
young adult literature. So I've written about John Green. I've published about him in the past. Um, mm -hmm. I just had a, a journal article drop last week um, about a couple of dystopian uh, novels, you know, The Hunger Games, and then another one called Orleans, which is really good. But, you know, and then the other thing is to prepare, you know, new high school English teachers. I I don't like this. I, I think that that something so the the real answer here but it goes back even farther than that but you know at the beginning of the 20th century we decided i wasn't alive neither of you were either but we i guess decided that um you know adolescence was a real thing it was a thing that happened between childhood and adulthood and it was adults jobs to make sure that children didn't grow up too fast because they weren't ready and by weren't ready, we meant y'all didn't know the right things yet. Y'all don't know how to be racist yet. We have to teach you, for example. And and so we've kind of flattened out these 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 years. And and so uh, you know, in, in this these these years of adolescence that are flattened out, there's no legitimacy there. Uh, you know, it, it, there's no like whatever you like. It can't be real. You don't know anything yet. You don't. You haven't read the canon. You don't know what good reading is. You know, you can't possibly like this newfangled music. You can't possibly, you know, you think you're, you, you know. And then, of course, in my generation, it began to start being, you can't be gay. You might think you are, but you, you'll figure it out. You know, that kind of thing. And so it, it, yeah, it goes back to that idea. Yeah, it, it just so. And I mean, self-diagnosis is something that's happening today. Uh, you know, thinking about, you can't possibly know what's going on in your head. Which is such an absurd thing to say. But, you know, so I love what happens with fandom today. You know, when you, you talk about, you know, BTS or, or K-pop or, or whatever it is you want to talk. I love that because it's this assertion right now that I haven't seen happen in my lifetime to the extent that it's happening now. That we do know what we like and we do care about it. And if it has no other meaning, it has meaning because of that. And, and I, I, I think that's great. And, and so my job is to find ways to bring that in to those traditional experiences of like public education. So mm. it's, not, it's not a big task or anything, but it's important. Yeah. You're, do, you're out here doing God's work, Sam. <laughs> yes, you are. Oh, it's so much fun, let me tell you. Um, but that... <laughs> it, you know, I, I'll say this one last thing. Part of, and I'll, and I'll bring it back to Pearl Jam to make it work. Um, <laughs> it, it's all it, one song. It is all one song, but this is the thing. It's, it's this idea of utopian philosophy that I work with all the time. Utopia is, is not a place. It's, it's a feeling that's inside of you. And it, it's an energy that allows us to move forward instead of backward. And we are not doing a good job about that right now. You know, I was writing about utopianism and forward thinking during the pandemic last year, and that was very, very depressing. But the thing to remember is, is, and and uh, there's a German philosopher named Ernst Bloch. I won't take credit for this, but he used, but he said that energy that happens in us, that utopian forward-looking energy, it's at its strongest in youth. It's kind of like a Peter Pan thing. The older you get, the more you forget. But here's the thing. You don't have to. 
you can choose not to. And part of that choosing not to is not giving in to that fiction that, you know, the older you are, the wiser you are, that wisdom comes with age. Well, sure, maybe it does, but, but youth have a ton to offer. You know, Socrates allegedly said that. Maybe it was just Plato. I don't know. But, you know, that was supposedly true back well, then. Well, one of the two. Right. I mean, but Pearl Jam talks a lot about that, you know, especially on No Code, talking about, you know, what I could have done if I had had a little bit more knowledge when I was younger. But but being young still matters. Um, and so, like I said, I'm excited to see now more than ever that, that uh, you know, adolescents especially are able to articulate how they feel about things and and i think it's our jobs as we get older to not turn our noses up at what the next group of kids do so there's my soapbox yeah that's pretty good i think that might be a good place to wrap it up oh my god hmm? i nearly fell over you're all right yeah I, mean, I love how, like, in the background of all of these recording sessions, it has been me, like, falling over. Like, I fell off of the couch uh, when we were recording Faust's episode. Like, it, I am a danger to myself because I have no balance or coordination, it seems. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I think that might be a good place to wrap it up. Yeah. Um, Sam, where can we find you? Anything to plug? So I am on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. Uh, do you mind if I plug the podcast? Here, go ahead. All right. So our podcast, I podcast with Tessa and Andy, I think who have both been on here already. Is that correct? That is, yep. that is uh, correct. So we episode is the most recent one at the, like at the time we're recording this. Awesome. So we host Monkey Off My Backlog, a pop culture productivity podcast. We are we are doing some cool format stuff. Looking forward to talking about some more different things. Still getting monkeys off of our backlog. Um, but we'll be doing kind of an in-depth uh, look into James Bond in, uh, I guess it'll be October. We'll record it in September. Nice. So, you know. Um, but we're on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Nice. Uh, Nigel, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Spicy Nigel, where I have uh, recently I've gotten my vaccine. She done got her vaccine. Um, nice. That's the most exciting thing that's happened to me recently. Uh, I've also tweeted about how I'm really eyeing up seats in the Ryanair seat sale. That, uh, you buy them now, uh, like before the end of July, and then you got to fly between like September and October. But like, damn, I want I want to go abroad again. That's my main thing. That's where you can find me. Um, if you follow me there, maybe I'll post pictures of my travels. You can find me at on Twitter at alicat underscore ali spelled like alleyway cat spelled with k, um, and on Instagram at ali a l l y underscore k underscore keegan. You can find the podcast at HyperFixationsP on Twitter. Or at HyperFixationsPod on Instagram. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, be that Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or in a cryptic message in a video game. If you would like to discuss your hyperfixation, 
with us, please feel free to reach out to us at any of the aforementioned social media. Absolutely. Sam, it was a pleasure to have you on. It was great being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, all right, that's it. That's all for me this week, folks. Goodbye. Bye. I'm signing off.